With the latest agriculture news from across the state and nation, it's time for the AgNet News Hour from AgNet West. Here's your host, Danielle Leal. Hey everyone, Danielle Leal here, and thanks for getting your agriculture news with me today. It is day two of the World Ag Expo 2023, taking care of ag business here on the grounds of the International Agri Center. The AgNet West team is here. We were here yesterday. Listening into that Farm Bill listening session, gathering updates from the seminar booths and just walking the grounds and taking in all of the latest and greatest in agriculture technology. If you haven't made it out there still today and tomorrow, make sure to visit the World Ag Expo website to take a look at some of those seminar sessions if you're interested in gathering more information on the current ag industry. Right now, let's go ahead and jump into today's show headlines. $15 million for water supply reliability in the Central Valley. The Department of Water Resources has awarded $15 million to support water projects throughout the Central Valley with the Integrated Regional Water Management Program. The projects help support flood control, water supply, reliability, and groundwater recharge. DWR Director Carla Nemeth says, quote, While the recent storms in California helped ease drought impacts in parts of California, many areas that rely on groundwater, like in Fresno and Kern counties, are still experiencing water supply shortages. Nemeth added, quote, Today's funding will help improve water supply reliability and water quality in these communities, while supporting groundwater recharge that reduces flood risks and enhances stormwater management. The projects will take place in the Kern County, Thule, and Upper Kings Basin areas. The projects will be financed with money from Prop 1. According to the DWR, these grants help move the state toward its goal addressed in the governor's water supply strategy, adapting to a hotter, drier future of investing in projects across California to funnel flood flows into groundwater recharge projects and stormwater capture infrastructure. To view a list of the projects, you can visit the Department of Water Resources website. And now here's Brian German with more agriculture news. Ag Order 4.0 is causing quite a bit of adjustment for growers on the Central Coast. Executive Director of the Monterey County Farm Bureau, Norm Groot, said that the rollout of the new requirements has been a bit of a challenge. There's a lot of educational upside that needs to be done there as far as involving a lot of of farmers before that are now coming into uh, other water quality requirements that are going to be rather daunting, I think, especially for the smaller farms and, and how they're going to manage that. So we're trying to still provide that education. There's a whole bunch of new record keeping that everyone has to start here in January of this year. And so it'll be interesting to see how that moves through the process and some of these smaller farms also. But we're still working on it. Let's put it that way. And we're still hoping that we get some moderation through our appeal process with the state water board. Canada's tariff rate quota policy for dairy continues to be a problem for U.S. producers. U.S. Trade Representative's Office Chief Ag Negotiator Doug McCaleb explains how California's been treating American dairy products under USMCA and the subsequent action that's been taken. What the ensuing couple of years showed was that the Canadian government did not provide the access that our producers felt would be fair and equitable. So in December of 2021, the United States brought forward and we won a USMCA case over Canada's policies and their dairy tariff rate quotas. However, Canada's implementation, once 
the U.S. won that case, still didn't provide the market access our farmers deserved. So what we have done is launched a second dispute panel request so that we can have a case in front of the Canada government that will lock them into the kind of market access that our dairy farmers deserve and expect. I'm Brian German for Agnet West Radio Network. Thanks, Brian, and stay tuned as we'll have more of the day's agriculture news and farm features here on the Agnet News Hour. Don't forget if you've missed any of our morning shows or if you simply need to catch the news at a different time, you can always subscribe to our podcast and at Statewide Agriculture News at your convenience. All you have to do is search our name of Agnet West on your favorite podcast downloading app. That's Agnet West. It's available on both Apple and Android devices. Farm Employers Labor Service Compliance Posters could save you thousands of dollars. Did you know that California lawmakers can be fined as much as $13,000 in government penalties if they don't have all the required employee and farm labor information posted for their workers? Avoid costly penalties and give yourself peace of mind knowing you are in full compliance with Fells Posters. At only $175, this full set of laminated weatherproof posters eliminates the risk. Order yours at FELS.net. Welcome back to the Agnet News Hour by Agnet West. I'm your host, Daniel Leal, tossing it right on over to Sabrina Halverson with today's National Spotlight. In today's National Spotlight, as discussions continue on putting together the next farm bill, the Organic Trade Association recently held a press conference on its priorities for the new legislation. Tom Chapman, CEO of the Organic Trade Association, says they are looking forward to working together on a bill that's a win for organic. We're really excited to get working with our members, our coalition partners, and with Congress to really get another win for organic to make sure that we're seeing the response of organic standards, the thriving American farmers, and really making sure that we're bolstering those supply chains to be resilient in the face of all the issues that have come up over the last few years. Adam Worthison, the Community Relations Committee Chair and a member of the OTA Board of Directors, says organic has great support from both consumers and public officials. One of the things I've realized in organic is we have consumers on both sides of the aisle, we have businesses on both sides of the aisle, and it ends up that we have members of Congress on both sides of the aisle that support the industry. And if you think about the organic caucus in the House, we have Shelley Pingree from Maine as one of the co-chairs, and the other co-chair is Representative Newhouse from Washington. So we even have like a geographical spread that's really powerful, I think. And we have seen within the committee structure an understanding that organic is a part of the larger agriculture industry and want to be able to support that choice for American farmers and businesses and consumers. For more information, go to OTA.com. There's new technology for cotton growers and it's now commercially available. Yes, we have the most exciting news. We are so happy to share that um, we got all approvals and we are now able to commercialize Thrive On technology across the U.S. Thrive On Technology is the industry's first cotton biotech trait that will provide season-long protection against tarnished plant bug and thrips species. Lindsay Battle, the Bear Crop Science Trait Marketing and Launch Lead for North American Regional Crops, explains. It's a technology that we're super excited about. Um, Thrive On is the industry's first cotton biotech trait that is going to provide protection against tarnished plant bugs and thrips species. And when you think about the threats that are out there in the environment right now, thrips and tarnished plant bugs are currently the two most damaging pests that are not currently controlled um, by technology. So we're really excited to bring this um, product to the market. Battle says this technology can help in a couple of ways. 
So right now, a lot of this is being um, controlled by over-the-top sprays. And so this is a simple built-in technology that's really going to help protect the cotton throughout the year. And so it can reduce insecticide applications for both tarnished plant bugs and thrip species, but more importantly, provides the grower um, flexibility in how they manage their crop by having that technology built in and not having to rely as heavily um, on timely insecticide applications. On top of that, other technologies are incorporated. Thrive-On is stacked with our Bolgard 3 as well as ExtendFlex technology. And so not only is it going to protect against tarnished plant bugs and thrip species, but you also have broad-spectrum protection um, against bullworm, tobacco budworm, and other common worm pests. And then finally, because of the Extendflex technology, this product has a tolerance um, to glyphosate, dicamba, and glufosinate, so providing tons of options against tough-to-control and resistant weeds. She says the announcement of commercial availability is very exciting for her and the team at Bayer Crop Science. You know, we started working on this product almost 20 years ago, and so... You know, this is something that's really important to us. We know it's something that's important to growers, and we're just really excited to finally be able to commercialize it and get it into the hands of our growers. That's today's National Spotlight. I'm Sabrina Halverson for Agnet West. Thanks, Sabrina. And now for today's Livestock Report, here's Randall Wiseman. Well, in today's Livestock News, Daytona International Speedway in Daytona, Florida will be the setting for the 42nd season opening race for the NASCAR Xfinity Series this Saturday, February 18th. And it's the third year in a row for the beef industry to sponsor the event known as the Beef It's What's for Dinner 300. We had a chance to catch up with Florida Beef Council's Director of Education and Promotion, Deanne Maples. She is one of those who has worked hard to put this event together for the past three years, and she explains why they're so excited about the event. It is the week of the third running of the NASCAR Xfinity Series Beef It's What's for Dinner 300. And as the event has gone for the last couple of years, We'll look forward to a lot of the same this year. You know, the opportunity not just to have our brand, the brand that our producers own, flashed all over the television broadcast, which will be on Fox Sports 1 at 5 p.m. on Saturday, February 18th. So we'll look forward to that, of course. But then, you know, all the engagements and activations that we'll do on the ground in Daytona as well. You know, we've had some Of course, a lot of digital media traffic around this event. We'll have the beef booth back in Daytona again this year where we'll be engaging with fans and handing out beef jerky sticks and beef sliders and, of course, talking about the industry and just generally thanking and engaging with our consumers who are also friends to our industry. You know, I realize you all do a lot of events throughout the year, but this one place encompasses so many different ways that you can really get in touch with consumers and get the beef message out to them. Oh, it does. One of the coolest parts, you know, I I always talk about what we're going to do on the ground, engaging with fans and the consumers at home that will see the brand and all all of those neat things, the campers who are there cooking beef in the infield, all of those areas. But, you know, it really just comes down to the fact, too, that these people, the fans of this sport, spread from coast to coast, some of their largest Fan bases and viewer areas are happening in L.A. and Boston and Denver and Seattle and all of these places that, you know, we're actively wanting to connect with with our beef messaging. And so that's great. You know, we have the chance to reach those fans 
But, you know, number two, the loyalty, the brand loyalty among the NASCAR fan is unlike any other sport. And so, you know, these people, they're out there grilling beef and they love our product, um, but we want them to remain loving our product. So remind producers out there again, I know this is a big event, so you have a lot of support coming in to help out with it. Oh, we do. So it's funded with beef checkoff dollars, which, you know, all producers across our country are investing in. So it is their investment as well. But we do. We have awesome help on the ground from our state beef council partners who have been with us from the beginning and been a a large team effort. To learn more about the beef, it's what's for dinner 300 again being run this coming Saturday. Go to beefitswhatsfordinner.com. I'm Randall Wiseman for Agnet West. This is the Agnet News Hour by Agnet West. I'm your host, Daniel Leal. We'll be back in just a moment with more of the day's national headlines and local reports when we return. But don't forget, if you've missed any of our morning shows or if you simply need to catch the news at a different time, you can always subscribe to our podcast and have statewide agriculture news at your convenience. All you have to do is search Agnet News Hour or Agnet West on your favorite podcast downloading app. That's Agnet News Hour. It's available on both Apple and Android devices. Farm Employers Labor Service Compliance Posters could save you thousands of dollars. Did you know that California lawmakers can be fined as much as $13,000 in government penalties if they don't have all the required employee and farm labor information posted for their workers? Avoid costly penalties and give yourself peace of mind knowing you are in full compliance with Fells Posters. At only $175, this full set of laminated weatherproof posters eliminates the risk. Order yours at FELS.net. You've been listening to the Agnet News Hour by Agnet West. I'm your host, Daniel Leal. Welcome back. We've got more of the day's agriculture news right now. Investing in climate-smart agriculture. That's coming up on This Land of Ours. Agriculture Secretary Tom Vilsack announced funding for agricultural producers and forest landowners to participate in voluntary conservation programs and adopt climate-smart practices. The Inflation Reduction Act provided an additional $19.5 billion over five years for climate-smart agriculture through several USDA Natural Resources Conservation Service programs. NRCS is making available $850 million in fiscal year 2023 for its oversubscribed conservation programs, the Environmental Quality Incentives Program, Conservation Stewardship Program, Agricultural Conservation Easement Program, and Regional Conservation Partnership Program. Secretary Vilsack says we know that agriculture plays a critical role in the nation's effort to address climate change. Increased funding levels begin in fiscal year 2023 and rapidly build over four years. The additional investments are estimated to help hundreds of thousands of farmers and ranchers apply conservation to millions of acres of land. I'm Sabrina Halverson for Agnet West. This is the Agricultural Law and Tax Report. I'm Roger McOwen. The successful transition of a landowner relationship is often important for the success of the farming business into the next generation, both from the perspective of the landowner and the current farm operator. What are some of the things to consider that will make the transition one that works? What makes for the successful transition of a landowner relationship for a farming operation? If you are the farmer and are transitioning to the next generation of your family, have you given them the tools to maintain the current relationship with the landowner? Does the landlord know the individual that will be taking over? Have you built a relationship with the next generation of landowners? Do you know the landlord's heirs? Will the new owner take a higher rent amount from the neighbor? Will they keep the farm or sell it? If they might sell, should you have a lease agreement with a right of first refusal? It's always a good idea to keep the landowner involved and informed and make sure you promote what you're doing to maintain the land. What about your successor? 
Bring your successor to the next meeting regarding your lease arrangement. Get to know the landowner's family and treat them like yours. It's likely in the future that more landowners will live farther from the farm and be more disconnected from production agriculture. That makes having a solid relationship with the present generation of owners absolutely critical to having a successful transition of the landowner relationship. This has been the Agricultural Law and Tax Report. I'm Roger McOwen. Several may have a preconceived notion how an ag producer might receive income from their operation. And as Agriculture Secretary Tom Vilsack recently acknowledged during a visit with members of the National Sustainable Agriculture Coalition. The reality in America is that there essentially have been historically three ways for farmers to make money, to make profit. They can grow crops and sell them. They can raise livestock or the product from livestock and sell it and there's government support. Yet, as the secretary also pointed out, there are several existing, new, and developing market opportunities for farmers, ranchers, and other producers to generate revenue. For instance, there is the value-added opportunity, and that starts with organic. Another value-added revenue stream is being developed under the umbrella of climate. And that opportunity side is to create commodities that are produced with climate-smart agricultural practices. We know what those practices are. The question is, can we convince the marketplace that they have additional value? And can we convince that marketplace to make sure that that additional value inures to the benefit of producers? This could also result in another market opportunity for producers. This creates not just an opportunity for value-added and ecosystem service markets, it also creates an opportunity for the bio-based economy. Local and regional food systems have also grown as a market option in recent years. And as Secretary Vilsack notes, a viable one in light of recent world events. It's a global market. Putin decides to invade Ukraine, markets get roiled. Dry spell in Argentina, markets get impacted. Good crop in Brazil, markets get impacted. Makes it really difficult for small and mid-sized producers to be able to adapt. They have no control. They're not in a position to negotiate. That's not true with a local and regional food system. Renewable energy production on the farm goes beyond traditional renewable fuels like ethanol. There is also through resources like methane digesters. This creates not just an opportunity for value-added and ecosystem service markets, it also creates an opportunity for the bio-based economy. The secretary says a combination of public funding, public-private partnerships, and innovations are all necessary to make these new and developing economic opportunities for ag producers a reality. Now instead of two or three, they've got four, five, six, seven, and within each category we have literally thousands of new opportunities. I'm Rod Bain reporting for the U.S. Department of Agriculture in Washington, D.C. You're listening to Agnet News Hour by Agnet West. I'm your host, Daniel Leo. We'll be right back in just a moment with more agriculture news. You're going to need me. You're going to need us. All of us. You're going to need our help with your water, your air, your food. You're going to need our determination, our compassion. You're going to need the next generation of leaders to face the challenges the future will bring. And we promise we'll be there when you need us. Today, 4-H is growing the next generation of leaders. Support us at 4-H.org. Welcome back to the Agnet News Hour by Agnet West, providing you with statewide agriculture news daily. I'm your host, Danielle Leal. Now let's listen in to more featured segments. 
Kendall Jones is the chair of National Crop Insurance Services and president and CEO of ProAg. Over the past 75 years, the crop insurance industry has worked to turn challenges into new opportunities for agriculture. The result is a modern, data-driven, and responsive crop insurance program. Crop insurance helps give farmers the risk management tools they need to grow the crops that feed, fuel, and clothe America. Last year, crop insurance protected a record 490 million acres of farmland. Farmers and ranchers across the country support a strong crop insurance program. I'm proud to work for an industry that is tapping into American innovation to continually improve the products that we offer to farmers. That's why farmers trust crop insurance. And it's no wonder that farmers are speaking out about the importance of crop insurance as Congress debates the next farm bill. Crop insurance also serves as a partner to farmers as they work to invest in climate smart solutions. We need a farm bill that strengthens crop insurance so that it works for more farmers, more crops and more acres. This is even more critical as farmers work towards real climate solutions. Crop insurance has adapted to accommodate farmer led conservation practices and investments in technology. Jones notes that farmers purchase crop insurance policies and farmers invested more than $6 billion of their own money in 2022 to protect their crops. The crop insurance industry is protecting the American farmer while being a good steward for the American taxpayer. When it comes to supporting farmers and protecting a secure food supply, there's just too much at stake to not have a strong safety net in place. Crop insurance keeps America growing. For more information, go to ag-risk.org. Chad Smith reporting. Good day, everybody. Albert J. Hernandez, the Untamed Chef for Agnet West. Welcome to the California Kitchen, where you can learn how to cook from an award-winning chef in under three minutes or less. I'm your host with the most. Let's get untamed. I hope everybody had a fun Super Bowl. Personally, I don't care to watch it, but I do like making really, really great food, and that's exactly what I did. Now, if you followed my brisket recipe, you're probably wondering, Chef, we got a whole lot of brisket. What do we do? We use that same exact delicious brisket, and we turn it into something completely different. Here is my recipe, or technique, I should say more than that, to do a beautiful cast iron brisket saute. Now, the very first thing I'm going to do is I'm going to be cooking this on a flat grill or like a blackstone grill, like an outdoor grill. And I know everybody has one of these. This makes life a whole lot easy. Trust me when I say that. So very simply, what I'm going to do is I'm going to turn on my grill. I'm going to start it off on high. And then once I season the grill, I'm just going to put some oil, salt and pepper. And I'm going to let that sit for about two to three minutes, knowing just that everything is nice and hot. We don't ever want to put food on a cold grill. So three minutes gets it nice and hot on high. Then I'm going to turn it down to low and I'm going to put my brisket. Now I'm going to take my brisket. I'm going to slice it into chunks, uh, maybe slices actually. And then we're going to put a good sear on it. I'm going to add to this some onions. I love doing a nice forage mushroom. I believe in this case, uh, we're doing a beach mushroom and serrano chilies but i'm going to put that saute on the other side of the grill so i'm just going to get a put a good color on the brisket first this is very very important so we can really build a nice flavor as you start to get that brisket nice and seared it's going to start that fat's going to start to melt it's going to be just phenomenal and then i'm going to use a spatula a, a sharp spatula to cut that brisket up into nice small pieces and we're going to start folding that into our mixture of our mushroom 
pepper, and onion. I'm going to fold it in and I'm going to stick it just in the corner. This is very, very important of the grill. I'm going to top that with a little bit more oil and I'm going to bring the heat up just a little tiny bit. I'm going to add a little bit more salt and pepper over the top if I think it needs it. And usually it does because brisket, it's one of those very incredible meats that needs a lot of good seasoning to have a great, great flavor because it is a very heavy meat. Uh, so very simply, I'm going to just add a little more seasoning to this. I'm going to give it a nice stir up, make sure everything is as uniform as possible in terms of the sizes of the meat and enjoy. You are going to absolutely love this recipe and I hope it finds everyone well. For this and many more of my untamed tips, tricks, and all things untamed, go to www.ajhtheuntamedchef.com. And as always, this is Albert J. Hernandez, The Untamed Chef for Agnet West. We finally have the complete trade numbers for agriculture for December, which confirmed what most people expected. This was a record December for exports. Best December ever, $17 billion worth of sales, according to USDA economist and trade tracker Bart Kenner. These December sales numbers enabled the Undersecretary of Agriculture for Trade, Alexis Taylor, to give this news to the Senate Agriculture Committee the other day. We are proud that our work opening and maintaining markets has resulted in a new record in agricultural exports of $196 billion last year. Beating 2021's record by $20 billion, but Bart Kenner told us... Most of the gains in exports came from unit value increases from uh, higher prices as a lot of the volume exports that are tracked were actually declining. But let's keep things upbeat and talk dollars. So in 2022, wheat sales up. 17% from the year before, soybeans 26%, but getting the prize for the most improved export performance? Cotton exports were $9.2 billion, up 57% over last year. Double award for cotton, one of the few products with higher shipment volumes as well, up 16%. So who's buying all these U.S. products? Bart Kenner says top of the customer list by a pretty good amount, China, which bought during calendar 2022 a record amount of U.S. ag products. In fact, they have been records for the past three years. With very big yearly increases. Going from $26.4 billion to $32.8 billion to $38.2 billion in 22. $38 billion. That's a pretty big chunk of our total U.S. export sales to all nations. 19.5% of ag exports have gone to China in 2022. So what are we uh, selling to China? $17.9 billion worth of soybeans, followed by $5.3 billion of corn. And cotton, just under $3 billion worth. And Bart, all this buying by China is with no uh, phase one trade agreement, right? Correct. Phase one ended at the end of calendar year 21. Now, beyond China, our next biggest customer last year, Canada, taking 16% of our exports, Mexico, 14%, Japan, a distant fourth place at 8%. So a record 2022 for U.S. ag exports. What will this year bring? USDA is planning to release its 2023 forecast at its annual outlook forum, February 23rd. Gary Crawford for the U.S. Department of Agriculture. You're listening to Agnet News Hour by Agnet West. I'm your host, Daniel Leo. We'll be right back in just a moment with more agriculture news. 
Farm Employers Labor Service Compliance posters could save you thousands of dollars. Did you know that California lawmakers can be fined as much as $13,000 in government penalties if they don't have all the required employee and farm labor information posted for their workers? Avoid costly penalties and give yourself peace of mind knowing you are in full compliance with Fells posters. At only $175, this full set of laminated weatherproof posters eliminates the risk. Order yours at FELS.net. So today we are chatting with Stanislaus County Farm Bureau's Anna Genesi and uh, the CFO of Virtual Nursery, also in the Stanislaus County area, Jim Austin. Thank you guys for joining me today. Welcome back, Anna, and uh, it's great to chat with you today, uh, Jim. Thanks, Danielle. So today we are, are going to be talking about all things labor, um, H-2A specifically, but before we get into that, Jim, um, why don't you just give me a bit of background on yourself and, and what you do in and virtual nurseries? A virtual nursery. Uh, we just celebrated our 80th year in business wow. in uh, October. Yep. Third generation with the fourth generation uh, working in the shop right now, repairing trucks and uh, starting to learn how to cut budwood. Yeah, he just graduated from college, so we have big plans for oh, very nice. squeezing him, like, <laughs> getting everything out of him we can. But uh, just celebrated 80 years, started out as a bare, nut, a bare root nursery in Modesto, and due to um, urban growth, uh, they moved their growing grounds out to Oakdale in the, maybe even the 50s, certainly the 60s, and then out here where we are now in the 70s. Um, we also have a location down in Fowler that specializes in growing potted trees. And here in Oakdale at the main ranch, we specialize in growing bare root trees, fruit and nut trees uh, uh, of all kinds. Nothing nothing ornamental, no, nothing like that. It's, mm-hmm. it's all, all commercial nursery. Mm. Do you source your trees to folks up and down the state, or is it primarily in that Stanislaus County region or throughout the San Joaquin Valley? No, it's 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 up and down the state. Um, we also sell into the Pacific Northwest, okay. and then surprisingly, we also sell a lot of stone fruit into South Carolina and Georgia. Ah. Turns out, turns out Georgia peaches aren't necessarily from Georgia. <laughs> You know what, Jim, our parent company is um, based in Florida, but uh, we have a stretch for it through our radio stations that reach Florida, Georgia, um, Alabama, and the Carolinas. And so they will get a kick out of this to know that some of those Georgia peaches, like you said, aren't necessarily from Georgia. (laughs) Yeah, many thousands of trees go to South Carolina and Georgia every year. Wow. We do um, specialize in some what we call low-chilled varieties. Mm Mm-hmm that bloom early and can produce a good crop without the harsh weather that you get in mm. more northern climates. Mm. Interesting. Uh, well, well, it's very nice to meet you, and um, I'm excited to chat with you today all about your experience with the, you know, using the H2A visa program. And um, with that being said, let's jump right into it. So, uh, Anna, this first question's for you. Can you briefly explain to me what the H-2A Agricultural Visa Worker Program is and who are the folks, who are the producers that primarily use it? Yeah, great question, Danielle. So um, H-2A program is a, is a program through the U.S. Department of Labor, and it is an opportunity for agriculture industry to utilize temporary labor from other countries. 
of course, because it goes through our government, there are a variety of hula hoops that have to be jumped through. Mm -hmm. Um, First and foremost, you have to be able to demonstrate that there is not a sufficient workforce domestically. Hmm. Um, So they're looking for things like, have you run an ad in the newspaper to recruit? Hmm. Um, You have to be able, as an employer, you have to be able to demonstrate that you could not find um, an available, qualified domestic workforce. Hmm. So that's that's the first thing. Um, then, uh, of course, these folks that are traveling here, um, you are responsible for their fees to get here and then to return to home. Hmm. Um, while they're here, you are, of course, paying them an hourly wage. And the way that that works, it is not synonymous with the minimum wage for the state that they're working in. It actually has to do with um, a term AWAR. It's the average effect wage rate. Mm-hmm. And here in California, I just checked this this morning because I wanted to be able to share this with folks. That current rate is $18.65 an hour. Wow. That's higher than our minimum wage rate currently. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely higher, which is why I'm super excited that we have Jim here today and can speak to um, kind of the numbers behind mm-hmm. all of that and why uh, for for virtual that penciled out. Mm-hmm. Um, so in addition to getting folks here, paying them that higher rate, you are also responsible for housing and a meal uh, per diem. So when you're looking at this program, you have to take those things, um, you know, into consideration. Uh, you're also providing daily transportation so mm-hmm. that they can get to and from work. So it's it's very, um, I would argue, uh, intimidating program mm-hmm. to look at. Um, and in the past, um, not widely used in California, you probably find a higher concentration of H2A being utilized uh, in the Midwest and the Southern states, hmm. uh, just due to uh, the ability to provide housing, right? Housing here, mm-hmm. as we know, is very expensive mm-hmm. in California. Um, and the uh, we grow different products here, right? Our commodities here are very different than what you're seeing in the Midwest. And I would argue that in California, we are always harvesting something, right? Um, and so the H2A program in its essence is temporary. Um, folks can only be here for a certain amount of time um, before they have to have what they call like a touchback. They have to go home and then go through the process again. Um, and that's, that's something that has always been a struggle uh, for California growers, when you think about the products that we grow, um, sometimes we need folks here uh, more frequently. The other thing um, is with our dairies, right? California has a huge dairy industry, and that job, as you well know, Danielle, is not seasonal, Mm-mm. right? We are milking cows every day. Christmas, um, Thanksgiving, so, so, no breaks. <laughs> I know, I know. We Believe me, I'm married to a former dairyman. Um, I ask him every once in a while, what do you miss? He says the cows, but no. he doesn't say, right. you know, <laughs> the work every weekend <laughs> and every holiday. Or at yeah. 2 a.m. when a so, when a gate is open and you've got cows running yeah. everywhere. <laughs> cows got out. Yeah. No, I hear you. Um, so that that kind of in a nutshell, um, and and I know Jim will speak to this. What I have heard in chatting with growers who have utilized this program is the um, amazing quality of folks that that come through this program. Mm-hmm. Um, and I know Jim can speak to this is the the people that do come into the United States under this H2A work program um, are here to work mm-hmm. and work hard 
and then want to get back home. Hmm. Um, and so that, you know, without kind of throwing our, our domestic workforce force under the bus, um, that's, that's something that means a lot, right, mm-hmm. to a grower during these times where, you know, we got to get the trees pulled out of the ground or, you or know, into the ground. Yes, exactly. Yeah. Yeah. Do either of you know, uh, you know, a rough estimate of how many H2A workers are employed in California? I don't know that number. However, I do know that that number is increasing. Mm. Okay. Um, stuff that I've read recently is is speaking to the fact that more and more California growers are looking at this as, as a as an option as as part of their workforce. Hmm. Okay. We're really being forced to because over the last, I'm going to say five years, maybe um, a longer trend than that. I've, I've been in this industry now for 10 years, but we've over my tenure here, it's uh, we've seen our difficulty in finding labor become ever more acute. Mm-hmm. And it's, it's a problem that's growing, not stabilizing or diminishing. This is just the first part of my conversation with Anna and Jim. Stay tuned as we talk more about farm labor shortages and the H-2A program in the coming shows. Right now, it's time for a quick break. Over the years, you've brought them into your home. You were prescribed opioids after the C-section and after dad's back injury. They helped when you were in pain and you held on to them just in case. But did you know holding on to unused opioids puts your family at risk? Trouble with opioids can start at home with unused medicines, such as pills, patches, and syrups. You can remove the risk and protect your family. Find out how at www.fda.gov slash drug disposal. You've been listening to the Agnet News Hour by Agnet West. I'm your host, Danielle Leal. Welcome back. We've got more of the day's agriculture news right now. Ashley Sturgill with Zenith, who focuses on workers' compensation, often does on-farm inspections to make sure those operating farm equipment are doing so properly and safely. She says farm equipment safety management can be tricky, especially as farm equipment technology evolves. In agriculture, we're very creative. We see a problem and we want to come up with a solution. And when it comes to our equipment, that can also create other hazards. So we create a piece of equipment to do a job for harvesting, let's say. But we very often don't think about how the human interfaces with that piece of equipment. Where are my harvesters going to be? Where's the operator going to be? How do people get on and off that equipment? So we're not considering that in the design or fabrication of that equipment. And so we solved one problem, but possibly created a lot of others. So we have the efficiency maybe on the harvesting side, but we're making it a big challenge and hazard for our employees that have to work on or around that equipment. She added that farm supervisors and employers should continue to keep their eyes and ears open when it comes to safety trainings to prevent further accidents and injuries from happening. Education is so key no matter what industry you're in. And especially when it comes to agriculture and it comes to safety, that is really important because we still are seeing the fatalities and injuries across the board. And our goal is to stop that. Like, we don't want that to happen. We do want people to go home at the end of the day and not have these catastrophic injuries and fatalities that affect their lives. And, you know, especially with farm equipment management, the thing with that is we have so many programs or so many other things. We have our heat illness, you know, our COVID programs. We have our wildfire smoke. We have our injury and illness prevention programs. We have all these programs, but this specific topic sometimes isn't 
isn't thought about in a formalized manner. It's just something we do. We have equipment, we have this, but there's no consensus. There's nothing about bringing it together into a, a complete program. National Future Farmers of America Week is coming up February 18th through the 25th. All 850,000 FFA members across the country will be spending the week taking part in agricultural, leadership, and service-based activities. Whether through service projects or community gatherings, National FFA Week is a time for members to raise awareness about the National FFA Organization's role in developing future leaders and the importance of agricultural education. This year, the organization aims to raise $500,000 during the 24 hours of Give FFA Day on Thursday, February 23rd. FFA hopes to achieve this by challenging everyone to contribute throughout the day with a goal of having 2,000 donors participate. Funds that are raised are put towards providing valuable programs, events, skills training, and more. To learn how to support the organization, you can visit ffa.org slash giveffaday. I'm Brian German for Agnet West Radio Network. To get more information on the topics you heard today, visit Agnet West online at agnetwest.com. You can also stay connected by following us on our social media at Agnet West on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter. You can also find our broadcast team of Danielle Leal, Brian German, and Sabrina Halvertson on Facebook and Twitter. Thank you for listening to the Agnet News Hour from Agnet West. Agnet West Radio Network, your primary choice for agriculture news.